Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Are you overwhelmed by the sheer volume of planes covered in books on this subject? Are you the kind of woodworker that would like to skip the instructions and dive right in? The kind of person who only resorts to reading the manual if the TV just won't work when you push all the buttons randomly? Or are you wondering why you need to invest the better part of the cost of the tool in a book about the tool? Well, today's book is a great little read that will have you up and running with the more common planes in next to no time. It's called Getting Started with Hand Planes, and it's by Scott Wynn. And remember, if you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. Also, if you'd like to support the show, you can find me in the usual places, but what I'd really appreciate is a recommendation to a friend, anyone that you think would benefit from listening to the show. So before we get going, I thought I'd give a brief shop update. The December holidays in December were warm, the days were long, and frankly, we kind of shut down from mid-December to well into January. It's a great time for working in the shop and spending time with the family. In my case, sometimes both together, as I spend time in the shop keeping my children from breaking tools or body parts. There were a few highlights for me this year over the Christmas break and I thought I'd share them with you. The first is semi-related to woodwork. It's about home DIY. I've been doing DIY for most of the last two decades because in my mid-twenties I became increasingly frustrated with contractors doing sloppy work. Generally i found that if I discount the cost of my own labour, I can usually come in under a comparable quote even if we include the purchase of some tools and quite a deal of wastage on the supplies. So if I think I can do it, I'll buy the hardware and try. Generally this works. As a result, items such as hanging pictures, more recently making picture frames, fixing cupboard drawers and easing sticky doors are all squarely in my camp. This holiday I allocated my wife one day to do her list and I just wanted to share that investing time in hand tools pays a myriad of benefits around the house. I could use a shoulder plane or a flush cut saw to finesse a sticky door. Broken drawers were put back together with a replacement part, and that part had been cut by hand, plane to fit, and clamped back together. Even fixing a broken daybed with some hidden brackets made a lot more sense now that I understand some of the reasons why the joinery employed was pretty terrible to start with. After all, our house has the same eclectic mix of IKEA-type furniture alongside heirlooms passed down from our wife's grandfather, and of late even a few things I've built. And that includes my pre-hand tool phase of life, the phase I think of as Captain Overkill and the pocket screw. If you're a power tool user or new to hand tools, I'd urge you to make the leap. I really believe that learning competency with a few basic hand tools will make an incredible addition to your arsenal. And the more familiar you get with them, the more often you'll reach for them, rather than puzzling out a complicated solution with a power alternate. So let's dive into the book. The author starts with a chapter called Smooth. It's a great place to start because the author goes into quite a bit of useful detail on how sandpaper, scrapers and planes work. If you're starting out, this section imparts an excellent understanding of why you should use a plane versus sandpaper and when sandpaper or a scraper is preferable to the plane. I guess we can all intuitively appreciate the difference in surface quality, luster, crispness of grain, but This section goes into detail about what is happening at the microscopic level to make it all happen. I think that if you understand this, it can inform a lot of your future decisions about what tools and techniques to employ. It's also useful that the author goes into detail about finishing at this point, 
It's not as complete a coverage as Flexnor or Shepard, but it's certainly useful and dispels a few myths about whether or not a surface can be too smooth to accept a finish after planing. The next chapter is about sharp, and I found this section to be up to date with newer metal technologies, such as PMV11, and the author's observations about the relative merits of the different steels seem to be spot on to me. There's a decent overview of blade steel, cutting technology, and the trade-offs, grain structure, hardness, hardening, tempering, annealing, carbon Japanese steel such as white steel and blue steel, cast brittle crucible steel, alloys such as A201, PMV11, tungsten vanadium, there's all you need to know about blades to begin your journey with planes. Chapter 3 gets into the guts of how a plane works. It's 25 pages long and it covers off the topics you're going to need to understand to use and tune your plane. Things like the angle of the blade to the work, the mouth opening, chip breakers and why we have them, bevel angles, camber or shape of the blade, length of the plane body and width of the blade. In an elegant no-nonsense manner Scott works through these topics and I feel that at the end of the chapter you'll have grasped the key mechanics that influence how a plane works. This section is a bit like a chef learning about key ingredients. If you pay attention here you have all the building blocks to tweak issues and performance later. And as the author suggests, you might want to skip it and come back later if you're finding it tough, but you're going to have to come back to it at some point. Personally, I'd suggest that you read it now and try and assimilate as much as possible. I enjoyed the fact that this part of the book and some later chapters do not simply gloss over Japanese or Eastern differences, and they highlight some examples of Chinese or Japanese planes. It might not be relevant to your choice of planes, but I think that it's interesting and more east-west balanced than most of the texts I've read. One gem for me in this chapter was a comparison of what blade angles were favoured in different cultures. It's apparent that there's a high interdependence between plane development and indigenous woods. For example, northern Europeans working with oak have a blade angle of 15 degrees lower for preliminary work than their counterparts who worked with tropical hardwoods, such as rosewood. I think this information is worth keeping in mind, because in some ways, the Bailey Platten planes have made us accept 45 degrees as the standard pitch, but the historical records tell quite a different story. 45 degrees is a compromise angle. It's not the best angle for the job, although it'll work in pretty much all woods, to some degree. On the other hand, if you have the luxury to choose your own bed angle on a wooden plane, or get a custom frog, or change the bevel up angle that you're using on your blade, you can really employ a blade angle that makes sense to your wood. I think it's something that's not often spoken about except in the context of hardwoods and avoiding tear out. But it makes a lot of sense to customize what you're using to what you're working on. I'm thinking about this a bit more, given that my family always wants to have white oak furniture. Now I have some ideas about what blade angles might be ideal for this. There's a great diagram in the book that shows good cutting angles for pine, fir, cherry, maple, walnut, oak, and rosewood. And if you're interested in molding planes, there's a nice sidebar on the trade-off between the quality of your cut and reducing tear-out. I also enjoyed the practical tips the author has on how to control tear-out and where it's appropriate to use a chip breaker or mouth opening or both. As with the rest of the book, the tone of the language is light and easy to digest while still conveying some pretty detailed information. I don't think you'll find this book hard to read and assimilate. The author also presents a nice balance between telling you what the options are 
and telling you his suggested way. There's nothing in here that gives me heartburn while reading, and I would suggest that following his suggestions is going to be the best option in most circumstances. Diagrams are used to explain a lot of the key concepts, and I'm a big fan of this way of explaining things, rather than using pictures. Taking one look at the diagrams explain bevel chatter or mouth openings in a very different way from a large number of pictures that might be unclear. I think it's a good choice to get the concepts across. The section also has some interesting information as it relates to stay set chip breakers and the Miller Falls lever cap. If you're a fan of record, Clifton or Miller Falls, these sections will give you some details on why their designs deviate from the Bailey pattern. And the logic behind the camber of blade edges is well explained. The author also cross-references the types of planes that will benefit from different cambers in this section, so it makes it easy to jump forwards in the book if you're interested in a particular type of plane. The final part of the chapter shows the typical wave-type diagrams of how a plane works, covers off the hollow ground and how this affects the bevel, and discusses the mystery of how flat is flat enough with reference to the sole of the plane. Width of the plane blade is also covered, and throughout the chapter the importance of sharpness is highlighted repeatedly. Practically, this kind of repetition makes sense in stressing the, well, least glamorous aspect, but probably most important aspect of plane fettling. I enjoyed seeing how the author bridges his knowledge of Japanese planes and brings this across practically into the configuration of a metal salt plane. I think it would be pretty difficult to get a metal plane into the exact configuration of the diagrams, but the crossover from the Japanese is quite important and it gives you a good idea of, if you have an out of true sole, where you should be focusing your effort. The anatomy of a hand plane and some basic history is covered next. The shortcomings of different styles of frogs are covered, so if you're trying to make up your mind between a bedrock or a standard one, this should answer any questions you have. There are quite a few pictures here of newer planes, such as the Veritas and Lee Nielsen models, and I find it refreshing that this does not feel dated. Custom frog angles are also covered as well as Bailey versus Norris lateral adjusters. A new piece of trivia for me was that the Primus adjuster used on wooden planes made by EC Primus Company uses a spring to reduce backlash, and this topic is covered, as well as the ease of lateral adjustment. I feel that this gives a good balance of perspectives, and like the type of steel you choose for the blade, it's more about personal preferences than a definitive and absolutely best option. I also now know why a screw-down cap iron is so prevalent on Norris-style planes, particularly the bevel lap planes. There's some good info here that I think prospective owners of a bevel lap plane should read. An interesting segue is the progression of thin blades. Initially they were marketed as being easier to sharpen, but in reality it was a purely commercial decision and a race to the lowest cost possible. If you've ever tried a freehand sharpen or worked with gnarly wood, you'll definitely appreciate the thicker blades. Let's be honest, there's a reason that when you go to Ron Hock or another premium blade maker, you don't see them advertising wafer thin blades as a premium line. I feel that in the main the author is balanced on any comparative technology, with the possible exception of bevel lap planes. I use bevel down and wooden planes myself, but I do think that for many, a premium bevel lap jack plane could be all the plane you need. This chapter could have done with a bit more um, in terms of a balanced perspective on those planes. To be fair, in chapter 6 the author does discuss them a bit more in terms of which planes to buy, but I would have liked a bit more detail here early in the book. The pros and cons of corrugated soles are covered, and there's a nice picture of a bamboo oiler which beats my rag in the can hands down. I might go and make one of these one day.
Chapter 5 is where we really get into the meat of the bench planes. No surprises, the first picture is of a number 7, a number 5 and a number 4. Personally I feel that the number 3 is underrated as a great little smoother and having built a full collection of models from number 3 to number 8, I think that a 3, 5 and 7 are an excellent choice. I ended up with the 2, 4, 5 and 7 but if I'm honest the 2 and the 4 could easily have been replaced with the 3 or even just the 2 maybe. Smoothing requires very little flattening, so the smaller plane is definitely worth considering. On the other hand, the number 4 and 5 are virtually guaranteed to turn up in a garage sale or a visit to an antique woodworking store, so the 4 is certainly easier to find. Triumvirate, the three that jointly rule. It's a quote from the book, but it's exactly of how I think of these planes. You might want more planes for niches, but these three, a block plane, a router plane, and some kind of rabbit plane should cover off virtually 100% of your joinery requirements. And maybe a scrub plane, if like me, you enjoy working from rough mill lumber and don't use any power tools in the shop. Try and remember this every time you see a set of planes in a plane till. The treatment of each type of plane here is excellent. You get everything you need to understand and there's no superfluous information. There's all the things like camber, projection, blade width, how to set up the chip breaker and what the purpose of the plane is. Effectively a guide to making sure you use it for what it was made to do and tune it appropriately. When I see someone new to planes becoming frustrated with them, it's invariably because they're using the wrong plane for the job. Trying to hog off wood with a joint or a smoother is an exercise in frustration. Likewise, don't try truing with the smoother. In the middle is the beloved jack, a plane that frankly can do everything pretty well. If you've got more self-restraint than me, there's no harm in just buying a jack and using it for all three primary purposes, truing, removing and smoothing. Whether it's old or new, wooden or metal, this tool has an incredible versatility and range. Then we're off to the jointer, and as he did at the start of the book, the author covers what is happening at the microscopic level with particular reference to glue-ups. I thought this was a good approach, as it's relevant, and the one area where I would suggest hand planes shine versus machine work. A mediocre job on an edge with a plane is still generally going to give you a much better glue-up than an entry-level machine tuned perfectly. I like the diagram that shows you how to get the ideal blade shape. It'll definitely help you set things up correctly. And then smoothers, the final member of the triumvirate. Planes from 2 to 4.5 are discussed here, as are larger planes for smoothing panels. I agree with the author's perspective that more than any other category, your choice of smoother is a personal choice. I think this is part of the mystique of hand planes. Wood is by no means homogenous. What you're working on is going to be different from anyone else, and consequently characteristics that you find important are not relevant to others, and vice versa. Initially in my career I went with a Paul Sellers recommendation and used a 4.5 as my initial smoother. I bought the PMV 11 blade from Veritas. He's a far more accomplished woodworker than I, and I'm sure he's got years of experience, but I'm still not a huge fan. My record is up for sale, and I've transferred the blade over to my jointer. Conversely, my number 4 and my number 2 are getting a lot of love. Chapter 6 is an absolute highlight of this book, or any book on hand planes for this matter. The author starts with some questions. If I were starting out now from scratch, what would I choose for my first plane? For my second, how would I build an effective set of planes that would serve my style of working? 
So the author starts with a block plane, then a low angle jack, and there's some discussion on your first smoother. I think that the author's advice is sensible, and I agree with most of it. Again, I'm not an expert, but I love a little 102 block plane without an adjustable throat, and it flies straight against everyone's advice of going with one with an adjustable throat. But you really can't fault the order the author suggests, and his advice is relevant, sensible, and up to date. There's one more caveat I'll add here. The author's quite frugal, and his advice is practical. But you might want to temper this with the buy your last tool first maxim. In the long run, it's cheaper to buy a premium Lee Nielsen smoother than it is to buy three other planes on your way to buying the same premium Lee Nielsen smoother. Test the advice against your commitment to hand tool woodworking, your OCD tendencies, your disposable income, and your personal definition of value. If you're tempted to buy premium, buy where it makes a difference. Smoothers definitely, jointers maybe, and jacks only if you're using them for a range of functions, or if you really place a premium on having a matched set of planes on the wall. Another area I differ a bit from the author is the focus on blade angles. If you're working on traditional hand tool woods, I'd suggest investing in proper sharpening equipment is a much better investment than initially investing in multiple blades or frogs. There's a Japanese research video showing the effect of a closely set chip breaker with a proper angle at a microscopic level, and the results are impressive. I think the bottom line is I'd focus on sharpening properly rather than obsessing with presentation angles. Buy some good diamond blades before you buy your first frog. Again, just me and my experience, and oak, cherry, walnut and pine are my go-to woods in the workshop. If you're different, maybe that uh, 55 or York Angle pitch frog makes a lot more sense for you than it does for me. It might sound like I'm critical of this section, but these are just minor gripes and I'm just sharing some of my experience. I find this section to be incredibly well balanced, and I like the fact that wooden planes are given their due for tasks that they excel at. The book, however, won't pander to your love of eastern planes. But there's another book by the author, Discovering Japanese Hand Planes, that might be of interest to you. I'll admit I haven't read it, but I did seriously consider buying it to add it to this mini-series on hand planes. Ultimately, I decided not to, and it's because I haven't used Japanese planes, and I didn't want to go out and buy a set of them and then give them a cursory use and then evaluate a book against them. If it changes in the future, I'll give his book a go, and I'll get back to you guys on my experience with Japanese planes. But at the moment, I'm pretty much in love with my Lee Nielsen's and my wooden planes that I've been making myself. Setting up and tuning are covered in about 25 pages for Bailey planes, and there's a few dedicated pages on setting up rabbit and block planes. The chapter begins with some solid advice on what to look for when purchasing older planes, and highlighting a few issues that are worth fixing, and a few that are not worth fixing. All the usual suspects are here, from flattening the back of the plane blade properly, to setting the chip breaker, to how to fettle the frog. In particular, the selection on correcting common chip breaker problems is thorough and well thought through. Configuring the sole is covered, and there's some handy references back to sections in previous chapters that you'll benefit from rereading. The author has some interesting techniques for flattening the sole. Personally, I don't have anywhere near his confidence, and I wouldn't take something like a scraper or a file to the bottom of the plane. But Scott makes a good case for how you should and why you should. I'll need to process that a bit more before putting it into practice. 
The author's knowledge of Japanese planes also comes through clearly and he suggested configurations for the souls and using things like carborundum to flatten them. As with the rest of the book, the diagrams are clear and you should have no problem to follow them to get the desired result. There's info on adjusting the mouth, but there's also a really good picture tutorial that works through tuning up a flea market find, a number six. Although rabbit planes have been largely neglected in this book, there's also a section on getting them ready for use and the author covers both the old and new Stanley 60 and a half. Again, there are a lot of photos here, clearly demonstrating how the author goes about remediating the sole and fettling an old plane. There's like a few pages on troubleshooting, and the most common problems are diagnosed and corrections are suggested. Sharpening gets 15 dedicated pages, and while this is not a sharpening bible, it covers the basics well. Flat hollow grind and micro bevel, freehand and grinding, and water stones in particular get a lot of coverage. Diamond stones get a brief mention, but oil stones are all but ignored. So this section is going to need some supplementation if you're keen on oil stones, or you're not keen on freehand sharpening. In addition, the use of carborundum for lapping the back of blades is going to be a bit unsettling to most Western users. The final two chapters are about working at the bench, and include typical shop appliances like planing stops, dead men, and wooden clamps, and how these can be used to meet the typical demands of the user when a board is in different orientations. There's also a simple planing bench, which is similar in style to the low Roman workbench, or a long narrow saw bench. There's a good set of diagrams and a narrative on how to shoot an edge, and I think this section is very clear and helpful. And this leads logically into a section on shooting boards and bench hooks. And with that, the book is done. So let's go back to the blurb on the back of the book. With this book and a well-chosen and correctly maintained set of planes, you'll be able to handle any type of wood in every woodworking situation. In an age of power tools, the traditional hand plane still has a place. Working with hand planes is often quicker, leaves a cleaner finish. Versatile hand planes can be used as a router, thickness planer or edger. They can accomplish jobs that otherwise would require expensive specialized power tools. Author and woodworking instructor Scott Wynn teaches how to choose, set up, maintain and master the basic variations of this indispensable hand tool. Scott shows how to discern the differences between each style of plane, how to select one that's best for your approach to woodworking, and how to set up and maintain different types. Getting started with hand planes is loaded with technically rich diagrams, illustrations, practical advice and skill building exercises. I think it's safe to say that the author achieves what he set out to do with the book. Getting Started with Hand Planes is 167 pages long, written by Scott Wynn, and you can find the book on Amazon. As at January 2020, it costs $13 for a physical copy and $10 for the Kindle edition. I'd rate the book a 4 for history, 5 for completeness, and a 6 for technique. So overall the book would be about a 6 out of 10 for me. And even then, only in the bench and block plane category. That sounds like quite a bad rating. And it begs the question, why have I selected it for a review against Schwartz and Hack? I guess that in essence I still consider this book to be a surprisingly useful introduction to bench and block planes, and I really enjoyed it when I read it. It punches above its weight in quite a strange way. The chapters feel easy to read and cover the essence of a lot of important concepts. So weirdly enough, the book feels comprehensive and light at the same time. If I went back to the start of my woodworking career and I had to choose only one book about planes, well, 
to be honest, you could do better. But if you consider this a gateway drug, an entry point into hand planes, for a very reasonable price, I think you're getting it spot on. It's a book that you'll probably supplement later on, but it's a great little book. If I compare this book to Hacks, it falls short in terms of history and detail. Likewise, if I compare it to Christopher Shaw's book, it doesn't have the sheer scope, doesn't have the explanation, and doesn't have the fantastic journalistic writing style. But on the other hand, the book is less than half the price of the others, and it covers the basics well. So if you're less interested in history and anecdotes and details, if you're really just interested in getting up and going with the bench planes and a block plane, this book might be the choice for you. It's easy, accessible, straightforward, and it's a good introduction to the more common planes. It's well laid out, the diagrams are clear, and it reads in a nice style that will have you whizzing through it in no time at all. I'd stress again at this point that the book covers only the bench planes and the block planes in details. So if you're interested in joinery planes, router planes or molding planes, I'd probably advise against this book. So overall, I'll give it a 6 out of 10 in the category planes. And that's it for now, woodworms. And remember, go make some crispy, chunky shavings for a change. Give the power jointers a day off. And keep reading. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes.